I think sometimes winning is dying on the cross and saying, you know what, I will take up my uh, cross and I will die for the benefit of other people. And that looks like a loss to the world, but for the Christian, that looks like a win. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Show Baraka is a hip-hop artist, an activist, a co-founder of the AND campaign, and an author. His new book is He Saw That It Was Good, Reimagining Your Creative Life to Repair a Broken World. I agree with Esau McCauley, who said, Show has not written a book for only creatives. He has written a book that will help all of us think intentionally about how the work we do, whatever it is, can be leveraged to fulfill God's purposes. He saw that it was good is the wonderful mix of history, theology, art, and cultural analysis that we need in this moment. Well, Show Baraka, I'm so glad you're able to join me on the Habit Podcast today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I am looking forward to this uh, stimulating conversation. <laughs> so, Show, I'm excited about your new book. He saw that it was good. Subtitle: Reimagining Your Creative Life to Repair a Broken World. Um, as I was just telling you a minute ago before we started recording, I thought I was just going to sort of skim skim your book to uh, to prepare for this conversation, and and uh, I found that I couldn't skim. There was just too much good stuff in there. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably high praise. That's that's the best kind of compliment you can get from somebody. Uh, so I am glad that it kept your attention. Yeah. Um, Let's see. I, I mean, it's hard to even know where to start, but here's where I want to start. You talk about this idea. Uh, you say, we hope to construct a new normal with truth and righteousness. And you're, and you're talking about doing that in creativity, in, in storytelling. Um, and that's a, how literally do you mean that? Constructing a new normal through the creative, our creative endeavors. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think I would like to think, I mean that very literally, but I do think there's a, there's a figurative, uh, uh, there's an imaginative aspect to that. Um, I think stories, as I've kind of communicated, I think stories help formulate identity and who we are. And so the, the, the more we tell uh, healthy, honest stories about ourselves, I think it makes us better individuals and gives us more wholesome identities a holistic, should I say, more holistic identities to better engage with not only the people that we would, that I would like to label as people within our tribe, but people who are in the metropolis who are different from us or where ideas come to, you know, either flourish or die because they're challenged or they're pushed and they're, they're squashed. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the, the better we not only uh, tell stories about ourselves, but how we tell stories about other people when we come to these center these, these city centers and when we come to these, uh, the Aragopagus, then we know how to better engage one another. And so when that happens, now we're, we're, there's an ability, there seems to be this great ability to be able to build a new understanding of how we should vote, how we should create policy, how we should love one another, interact, how we should deal with in conflict um, and not weaponize, I guess you can say, the ideas and the stories, but rather use them to paint portraits so that we can be, uh, that they can be castigated, if you will. Yeah. You know, the, on, uh, so on the one, you talk about a, a few different things with regard to how we shape uh, reality through stories. Um, and, and I think a really important point that you come back to a lot is, you know, it's, it's not, uh, we use our imagination. We tell stories, not just as a matter of saying, here's this invented 
future or this invented reality. Um, although there's, there's an element of that perhaps, but it's also telling stories to, to actually return to what's actually true. Right. And, yeah. and so you talk about both memory, both looking forward, but also looking back and in the memory of yeah. what is, you know, what's true. And, and, uh, yeah, I think if you don't have an honest memory, I say this, I think in a book, probably not word for word, but if you don't have an, uh, a good memory, then you, you don't, you can't construct good futures. And I, I part of, I think a lot of people, um, there are people who want to preserve particular parts of history that I think are very poisonous and tainted. And there are people who want to pass through or overlook history and uh, move towards a particular position that I don't know if it's quite helpful to not honor tradition. And so there's this wrestle, there's this dance. And I think all of humanity is trying to figure out how not to be messy in this dance. And so um, I think that's the, that's the beauty of memory. That's the beauty of imagination. And I think creativity is a way of trying to get people to disarm their most valued beliefs about themselves. And so, like, what about myself do may be harmful to the world? What about, what about, not what about myself, what about what I believe about maybe myself in the world might be harmful and how do I reevaluate those things so that we can have better dialogue and conversation? So a minute ago, you said, um, we're trying not to be messy in the dance. I, I, I think I, I may be misquoting you, but I, I think that's, that's what, what you said. Tell me about that. Are you saying... That's well, a good impulse, or that's a, or we need to just be willing. What, what, what are you? What are you yeah, getting? yeah. Maybe I should have said we are messy. Acknowledge our messiness, and then the goal is to become better uh, as we dance. Like the, <laughs> to be able to allow others to lead, to be able to le- to learn how to lead, but recognizing that there is going to be some humanity is. I, I think it's it's. I think it's the whole idea of good. I think it's foolish for us to think that we're always on the right side of history. I think it's foolish for us to think that we're, we're consistently the heroes in the narrative. Yeah. And this is why I say like, you know, there are times when you are the villain, there are times when you may be the oppressor. There are times when you are marginalizing people. There are times when you're stepping on someone's feet when you're dancing. Um, what makes it good is when you can acknowledge those frailties, when you can acknowledge yeah. those, those iniquities and say, you know what? Um, I think that I am progressing towards the villain. I'm progressing towards yeah. villainy right now. <laughs> I may need to reevaluate, do some self-inventory of what I believe and what I think and try to figure out how might this not be beneficial for society. And this is why I look at individuals like Phyllis Wheatley or I look at individuals uh-huh. like, you know, Harry Beecher Stowe. And I'm like, they intended to write and do great things, but there were moments where they probably failed in that. Yeah. Um, and, and it may take time for them to get to a place of evaluating their work and saying, you know what, I would have done something, I would probably would have done it differently or done it better. And we all have to do that. We all have to consistently be evaluating our work and saying, at this moment, it may seem good, but two years from now, this work may be problematic as, the, as a lot of people will say. Yeah. So, yeah. It's you talk about us tending to, to tell stories in which we're the heroes. It's it's a strange it's a strange habit we have of when we read the Bible, assuming that like associating with the the hero of the story, right? Assuming yeah. that I'm that I must you know that I'm David in the story. It's possible I'm Goliath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and maybe not even Goliath. Maybe you're the Philistine. I mean, the Philistine, you're the, you're the Hebrew folks who are running and that's right. afraid. You're like, I wish I had somebody to fight on my behalf. And I think that's where Jesus comes in and says, I'll be that advocate. And oftentimes we want to make ourselves that advocate. Um, mm-hmm. There are times when we are the Philistines cheering on Goliath. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just good for us to always evaluate like what we think is absolute truth, not absolute truth, I'm sorry, absolute rightness in the moments when we wield our particular truth um, mm-hmm. and how that can be very dangerous in moments where there is nuance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, since you mentioned absolute truth, this tendency to 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 think that our, our cultural assumptions yeah. are somehow ultimate. Absolutely. There's a, in chapter four, I talk about, um, open the chapter talking about my grandfather who, um, was, I say he's the kind of man who was made of, uh, denim and hard work. And so <laughs> one thing I knew about my grandfather is that every time he ate dinner, there was, no one could be in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I look at evangelicalism as it is, the way that a family is, is, is demonstrates health is by sitting around the table and eating as a family, having these deep conversations about how was your day, highs, lows. And I'm like, that may be great for that family, but every family can't operate like that. Because my grandfather woke up in the morning before the sun uh, (laughs) rose, and he he stopped working. Now, I'm not saying that's a healthy life, but that's what he had to do in order to help his family, to provide for his family, and uh, and to create a living so that I didn't have to work that way if I didn't want to. Um, And so the only piece of sanity that he had was when it's time for me to eat, I want to eat in the solace of my own thoughts. <laughs> and that is righteousness to me. Like that's healthy for me. Like that's yeah. hey, amen. Let's give this man, um, let's honor him by giving him the opportunity to do this. And if we were to evaluate what healthy Christianity or a healthy family dynamics are, we wouldn't say that's one of them. Mm-hmm. And I would, now I would say, no, like the cultural I guess the, 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 the cultural proposition um, for someone else may not be something that's healthy and beneficial for another people. Yeah. Well, this might be a, this might be a, an opportunity for me to ask you to clarify uh, something from your book that I found interesting, but I'm not sure I completely understood. And, and, and you talked about the, the relationship between gentrification and creativity. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little, little bit about what you mean? About, like how can, how can, a person's creative life be gentrified. Yeah. So I would say, and that's because it's the same chapter. Um, uh, I'll give a couple examples. One, um, I am not saying that gentrification in itself is entirely evil. What I am saying is, is there's an, there's an act within gentrification that changes not only the economic structure of a community, but it changes also like the, the cultural, like, you know, this, the dispersion of people is, very dangerous, but there's a mm-hmm. cultural element. There's a the cultural erasure, if you will, that happens when uh, people who have a particular idea flood a particular area, and their ideas become the norm of that particular, uh, you know, space. In a creative, uh, in the creative aspect, I think what may happen is um, there's a way that art, or there's a way that creativity is done, and then all of a sudden there's a there's a a a predominant thought that brings their money, that brings their influence. And now it changes the way that people think and and operate. And so now there's this cultural sensitivity that is lost. And so what I'm saying is, is 
in the Harlem Renaissance, um, and this is the reason why I, I, I use Zorna Hurston and I love Zorna Hurston and I love all the other individuals in the Harlem Renaissance, but when you look at the Harlem Renaissance, um, their main goal was to prop up what they thought was uh, exceptionalism, black excellence. And I think in order to fight against racial stereotypes and tropes, which I think is genius and is, is, is brilliant. However, there was a bit of shame that came, that comes along with this, uh, this uh, high art, this academia, this, this exceptionalism. When you look at the low culture that Zorna Hurston was trying to show honor and respect to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, even this happens with the within tribes is as we begin to change the the educational the economic status of, uh, status of a particular group or community of people the folks who don't fit into those those uh i guess fit nicely into those idea ideas begin to get marginalized and they begin mm-hmm. to they, they they're forgotten about and uh those people who don't fit into those ideas uh get pushed to the margins they are forgotten and uh, that, to me, is the shame of how ideas, art, and work can be gentrified, if you will. Mm. I don't know if that uh, brings clarity. <laughs> I wonder if it was the same chapter where you pointed out that the earliest Christian visual art was graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> In the right. catacombs. Yes. yes. That is the same chapter. But and then that somehow got pushed out of our, you know, the idea, now graffiti is low art. Right, right. So you think yeah. about people who were lowly trying to just communicate, like, this is, what <laughs> for whatever reasons the, the you know, this Christian art was used, it was mm-hmm. used to bring about some community, some, uh, you know, some synergy, I guess you will, yeah. some syncretism. However, um, now we look at that type of, dealing of art as low culture it's not yeah. not worth um real admiration am, ad, admonishment and uh and praise in the halls of academia or seminary so here's why i'm saying there's there's a there seems to be a little bit of a hypocrisy and struggle with this idea of gentrifying and gentry the people of high status um and at the end of the day that's what i'm trying to say there's a status that controls what is good um, in a particular group of people and Christianity has seen that and we need to figure out how to um, do away with this idea of the gentrification of Christianity. Yeah, right. You know, again, I don't know if this is a new topic or, or we're continuing the same topic, but I've, I've been, as I read through your book, I was really interested in a, in a recurring theme that um, the idea of us embracing an identity that's smaller than our than the one that God gave us and the ways in which, you know, the ways that that embracing a smaller identity um, uh, makes for, for works, for worse creative work. Um, and I'm just going to quote you here. Brokenness in society reproduces itself when we, when we create, I'm sorry. Brokenness in society reproduces itself when we create from an identity smaller than the one God gave us instead of reclaiming our rightful story. And, and I kept seeing that idea over and over, starting with, you know, I think the first time you mentioned it is when in, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent says, right. hey, you don't have eternal, you know, don't you want to be immortal? And, well, they kind of already had that, right. you know, and, and the ways in which the, these lies that tell us, hey, you're less than, than you're not enough. You've got to do more. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The irony, maybe? Uh, yeah. The irony of the the duping the dupe the the duping uh the duping <laughs> in the garden is that um it created this inversion that is that that is really interesting because we had the greatest identity possible mm-hmm. but we desired for something that actually removed us from having all that we desired in the tempting of whatever Satan communicated. And I don't even know if that made sense, but it made sense in my head. <laughs> but at the end of the day, what, to your point, is that I think a lot of what I believe the gospel to be is not necessarily the redeeming of uh, activity. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we need to stop doing certain things. But I, what I find the gospel to be most uh, beautiful, or when I find the gospel to be the most beautiful, is that it's redeeming my identity back towards who I am in God. Like I am a creation of this magnificent being that created the galaxies, the earth. And so I am a product of that. And I, and in that I am to produce other products like um, that reflect his goodness. And I think oftentimes not only in the spiritual sense, but even in our work sense, we, we create from small mindedness from like I walk into my job on a Monday through Friday basis and I don't think that I have the ability to literally change culture, society, cities, or even this workplace. But mm-hmm. you do. Gotcha. You have the ability, you have the capacity to literally bring life where you are as God brought life. And hopefully at the end of that, you can say it is good. Um, yeah. And so that's what I, I'm trying to get people to stop thinking small-minded. And not only in just creating art, but also in living their everyday work uh, how they see themselves in their daily operating as human beings on this earth. And that we are not, God's just not concerned about your, your sex life, your drugs or your, your lying, but he's concerned with who you are as a reflection of him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the stories we tell are a, uh, I mean, they are competing with other stories, other false stories that are being told. Yes. All the time. And, and, um, and you know you you have a lot to say specifically with regard to race in America, right? The the false stories that have been told about um, marginalized people, you know, black yeah. folks, brown folks, and um, you know, a, a, again, it is you are you're you've got it exactly right when, when you talk about our um, you know we change culture we we create a, uh, or we participate in a new normal, a, a new and better normal through the stories we tell, but also the most, the most, and you, you say this too, the most dangerous force against that are, are the false stories. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, um, it's a reason why I think I wanted to start the book off. The first chapter is dealing with stories because I, you know, I can talk about, race, I can talk about justice, I can talk about, you know, um, I guess you can say sex and language, and I can talk about how to be excellent in your work. But the reality is, is that stories shaped all of those things. They're like, the, mm-hmm. when I was young, somebody made statements about work, and that, and that, if, that impacted how I saw jobs for the rest of my life. When I was young, somebody told me stories about Koreans and Asians and white people, and that affected how I interacted with them for the rest of my life. When I was young, someone told me about foul language and sex, and so that impacted me for the rest of my life. 
And so what I wanted to say is, do you guys understand that we're always transmitting ideas, whether intentionally or unintentionally? And through that, people are being affected. We're creating like loose theology for people or loose doctrines or loose ideologies that may not be hardwired to paper or to, uh, to a com- but there's, there are stories that sit with people. Because I can remember so many, so many, so many stories as a young man that I recall that I'm like, man, that affected how I see this particular people or this particular group or this. And so we have to be very mindful about the stories, not only we tell through creative mediums, but also through our daily transmission of this information. When you're having conversations with relatives and there are young people or um, adults around, like they're, you're communicating some sort of truth about the world and you're painting God. And the way you paint God, people carry that portrait around and they hang that up and they say, well, this is how God looks to me. And apparently your God looks differently. And so therefore I'm offended. And so you need to be proselytized to this image of God. And uh, my point is that we all paint terrible gods. And how do we begin to wield the paintbrush better? So how do you wield the paintbrush better, Joe? I think it comes with one. The first thing I, I like to think um, is humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, always moving with humility. Um, and humility doesn't mean like not loving yourself. It doesn't mean not being proud of who you are, but it is also this aspect of loving who I am, but also recognizing that I'm a mess. <laughs> like I, I can go from righteous to ratchet in seconds. Uh, so that's one thing. I think it's also this aspect, and I, and I give a couple, uh, I give seven principles at the end of the book, but yeah, uh, I think it's also this aspect of, one of my favorite things is this that I talk about in the last chapter is uh, bringing dignity to diversity, like dignifying people in diversity. It doesn't mean that uniformity, but and, and it doesn't even mean always like y- unity, but it also means like honoring people and their difference. It's like um, I don't really know. Um, I don't know. I don't I don't know any Australians, <laughs> uh, but I have assumptions. I have stereotypes of Australians. Uh, Vegemite, I assume, is the most is a terror is the worst thing that. But I've never tasted it. I have these assumptions, um, but I also don't want to allow those assumptions to drive me to have such strong beliefs about them that when I meet them, I I have these uh, a checklist of of of, uh, of discriminatory thoughts, and there's a wall and a barrier built. And I think that's what our society has done. And we allow that to continually be done through media, through social media, through uh, our daily interactions, is that, um, and then we also have to understand, even within people groups, there's diversity within there. Like there's no homogeny within people group. Uh, white people, when, when you say white people, there's not this just unified understanding that all white people act like this. It's like, well, there are white people from the North, white people from the South. There are white people who have this, there are white people like, you know, and so, you know, it's the same thing with black people. So there has to be dignity within the diversity. Um, and I, I think, one of the other things is lastly, uh, read the book, is hospitality. We have to have, we have to be hospitable. So when we're humble, when we understand that people are different, how do we invite people to a space to where we can have kind of um, healthy conversations about how we are to operate? 
And I don't necessarily say or talk about this in the book, but then there's this, well, I do, I do talk about it to some degree. There's this idea of what does it mean to win and lose? Um, and I think our society is today is fixated on winning. Yeah. And I think, um, uh, I may say this in a book, <laughs> but I say it all the time. Because sometimes winning is dying on the cross. And sometimes winning is losing in a Christian sense um, is, is saying, you know what, I will take up my uh, cross and I will die for the benefit of other people. And that looks like a loss to the world. But for the Christian, that looks like a win. And I think we have to get to a place where we recognize that everything won't fall in line for us. Yeah. And that is easy to say, maybe for me here, um, but the world is messy. I've been to, I've been to no country. I traveled a lot and every country I know has its problems. Um, if it's not Ireland with religious tension, if it's not Rwanda with its tribal tension, if it's not India with its caste tension, it's America with its racial tension, it's going to be somewhere else, Greece or Italy with its political tension. Like it's, the problem is, is that people want to find reasons to hate each other. <laughs> and if it's not race, if it's not tribalism, it's not righteous, uh, religious, if it's not caste and social, it's just the fact that your, your house is just too close to mine. And I just don't want your house that close to mine. And I'll figure out a way to get rid of you. And um, I think as humanity, we have to figure out how to take losses for the benefit of other people. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is related to something else you said, um, that when, when humans fall prey to a dishonest story, there are no winners, not even those enriched, and you put that in quotation marks, through manipulation or exploitation. Yeah. And when we think in terms of winning and losing, we start thinking things like, well, I can change, you know, I, I can manipulate this story or I can, you know, I can maybe manufacture, make, make my opponents seem a little worse than they really are. Yeah so that I can win. But as you say, if, if we're not aligned with reality and what's true, yeah. then you haven't won. Yeah. Slavery is a, is a perfect picture of how the marginalizing, the, uh, the, the degradation, the, the moralization of a people is not just harmful for one group of people that's being subjugated, but it's harmful for the people who have a false sense of who they are because they pass that down. It's a mental, it's a mental illness. And you begin to actually think way more highly than yourself, even in the benefits of the, uh, of being somewhat of a oppressor and having power over people and getting financial compensation or benefits from this. At the end of the day, it has caused a mental illness in you. And there's nothing beneficial about suppressing people and benefiting from that and uh and thinking like oh yeah i'm enriched but i'll be all right like you have to deal with that and i think tony morrison talks about this and it's not i don't mention this in a book but it's a wonderful exchange she has with charlie rose uh on a pbs interview and she says um racism is really a disease for white people to find like to deal with and um, because yeah, you have this power and you do all this stuff and you subjugate, but does it make you a better person? Do you, do you, are you proud of yourself? And it's really something that you need to do it. Don't bring me into it because I'm not the one who's, who's doing the hating. 
I'm trying my best to exist in this world that has been created. And so you need to figure out how to deal with this, this mental disease that you have. And so uh, that's what happens when you think that there are fruits of, of actions like caste system, tribalism, racism, but it affects both parties. It's, yeah. it's poisonous. If I move into a gated community, right, I'm just choosing to live yeah. inside gate. <laughs> you know I mean, it's, yeah. it's right. like I've built this prison and I put myself inside of it. Exactly. Exactly. And there's so much that the uh, outside world can offer to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, before we run out of time, and I've kind of lost track of time. I don't know if we run out of time or not, but I, I want to hear you comment on, on this insight. You said the heritage of black creativity offers lessons for anyone, regardless of background, who wants to connect joyful resistance to the persevering imagination. Yes, A lot sir. of people who listen to this podcast are white folks. Show. I love uh, white and and so talk to <laughs> talk to to us about what the heritage of black creativity means for a a person not from a, a black background. Yeah. I think it's beneficial in many ways. Um, I think when you think about pain, pain is a, is a great equalizer because everybody's going to experience pain. There's no people anywhere on this earth who are, um, I guess you can say, are, who are exonerated from this great equalizer that, I don't know, God has allowed, which is pain. And so what I love to think is that there's a, there's a, a legacy of art that has been created from this posture of pain and perseverance mm. that I think can be beneficial to anybody. And it doesn't have to be you, you're dealing with racial pain. It doesn't even have to be you're dealing with political pain. It can just be you're just dealing with relational pain. I think the truths that are communicated from people who were enslaved and making music or making art, talking about a joyful hope and a resistance brings such a wonderful enlightenment and revelation to people who are trying to figure out their own mess. I think it's, a, I think it's, it's medicine for anybody's soul. And uh, I think there's just this legacy of black art and theology that has been tethered to this idea that God is not only good in the cognitive, but he's good in the corporeal where he cares about my mental state, but he also cares about my physical being. And um, I know how to talk about this faith in a way that is not only intellectual ascent, but it's experienced because he liberated us. He's yeah. he walked with me when my, when slave masters were whipping us. He's walked with me when families were being ripped apart. He walked with me when I wasn't allowed to eat at the same lunch counters. He's walked with me in the most dangerous of times, but yet and still I have a joy and a, and a hope. And to me, there is nothing that I can face today in 2020 that is any more perilous than what my people before me have faced. And so I'm like, if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. <laughs> That's great. I, I, I love the, the um, spiritual that you quote. Um, I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children's got shoes, sung yeah. by people who probably didn't have shoes. Yeah. Right, on their feet. Yeah. yeah. But but we're talking about that that God takes care 
Yeah. yeah. Amen. It's I, simple. I, it's a simple. It's a simple thing. Think about that in today in 2020. Like, um, people need food. People need. They need to feel protected. They need to feel safe. Like, is that not a gospel message? Is that not a good song? A gospel song? Uh, I need education. You need education. All God's people need education. (laughs) Like, that's gospel. And I I think today it wouldn't be considered gospel because it's like, no, oh, woe is me. It has to be some sort of hill (laughs) song-ish. Not to to make fun of his song. But it has to be like this. This lofty, oh Lord, art thou who whose presence blows the trees? Like, it, like, look, I just want the, I just want to be able to not to, to get pulled over by the police and make it to another day. Huh. That's gospel. Amen. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Okay, I there's something else I I, I want to talk about. <laughs> there's lots of things I want to talk about, but but here's. Uh, this was a, this was a really uh, a, a heartbreaking moment. There are plenty of heartbreaking moments in your in your book, but but one was when you when you tell about your little girl who's grown up in a house where she is affirmed every day, mm. and I think you indicated she goes to a school where she's affirmed every day, and she's she's the, it, it, you know, your house is full of of art done by black folks portraying black folks as beautiful. Yeah. As you can see, here's a little backdrop of, uh-huh. of a, a city in, in our house, uh, you know, uh-huh. kind of yeah. in the sixties, but go ahead. I'm sorry. And your little girl comes to you and says, I don't like my hair or my, or the color of my skin. And, and you've, as a, in your household, you've done everything that can be done. Right. Um, and, and, and your point is, Hey, you do what you can, you do all you can do, but we got kids still being their heads being filled with stories that, that you don't have any control over. Right. Yeah. Uh, where's the, where's the, give me some hope out of that. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't really know if there's a, if there's, if there's a ABCD strategy to say, here's what you do so that you never have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think is young youth are impressionable. I went through it as a young man. Um, I wanted to be a white boy named Eric. <laughs> you know, I remember the Cabarici jeans and the like, just wanted to. Yeah, I just that's what I wanted to be. I just because I just felt like their life was easier. Yeah, I lived in a different. You know, I, my my childhood was different than my daughter's. So you, I would think like, you know she wouldn't have the same you know, issues that I had. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that there's still messages that you have to compete with. And as I talk about in the book, there's you know, Disney Channel, there's mm-hmm. Nickelodeon, there are movies, there's this. And I don't expect Hollywood to care about identity affirmation if it doesn't make money for them. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, they wanna make money. Um, but as parents, I think what we have to understand is that, um, they're those, the media in Hollywood is quite influential and it's not just on, uh, when it comes to ideas of beauty and, uh, you know, racial affirmation, it's powerful when it comes to language, when it comes to ideas, when it comes to all types of things. I'm, you know, my daughter's much older now. She's very affirmed in how she feels. And well, 
there are areas where she's still insecure, um, but in, in certain things. And some of those influences are because of social media, because of YouTube. Yeah. And you're always having to, once again, tango to dance, to, to figure out what does she need in this moment? What do the people around me need to hear? How do I love them? How do I affirm them? How do I tell them that they are good? How do I fight against these negative images, these negative stories, these, these, these stories that may be affirming for another family, mm-hmm. um, but they may not be the most affirming for us. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. I don't want other families, not, other families and stories not to be affirmed, but I also don't want my, my, my family and my daughter to feel like this is the only uh, idea of beauty. I think yeah, Tony Morrison's yeah. Bluest Eye is a wonderful novel about this very thing. Um, it's not that blue eyes aren't beautiful and that people shouldn't celebrate the, the, the blueness of their eyes. But what about brown eyes? What about, you know, what about the different shades of brown? And how do you communicate like, no, you're good. God made you beautiful and yeah. be contented in that. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks. All right. Last question. Who are the who are the writers who make you want to write, or the artists who make you want to to make art? I mentioned her a couple of times, so I'll uh, just go ahead and just say her name. Toni Morrison is oh wow, the goat. It, it, just amazing. Yeah, she's the goat. And so I, I, you know, the the danger of people like Toni Morrison, G.K. Chesterton, uh, you know, Zora Hurston, C.S. Lewis. These are folks that I love. I'm sure there are other folks that uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm-hmm. Uh, love, hundred years of solitude, and cholera. Love in the time of cholera. These are the best of the best. Mm-hmm. And so when you <laughs> you pick up their work and then you get inspired to write, you <laughs> you look at your paper and you're like, "This is a piece of bleep." <laughs> compared, <laughs> yeah. to what, compared to what they're doing, yeah. and I had to get over that tension first of being like comparing myself to these luminaries and these greats. Uh, but they're the people who inspire me. Uh, the stories they tell, how they tell it, um, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful to, to sit there and listen. But music, um, I love all types of artists. Um, some of my favorites, um, Kanye West was, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's still, you know, he doesn't, his music is not as good as it used to be, but I loved his music. Uh, John Mayer. Mm-hmm is a person that I love. I'm going to actually say a comedian, Dave Chappelle. Huh. He inspires me in ways that I think, um, even though I don't want to write comedy, but I think the way that he thinks and um, how he, he, he approaches a joke from an angle and people think he's coming from this angle, but then he kind of yeah. comes from a different position. Yeah, he does. That's, that's... He's a professor who just knows how to tell jokes is what I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I love seventies music. So you know, all your just Motown. Yeah. I like you know, I I like to think that I'm a fan of Bob Dylan, but folks like Bob Dylan. Uh, but I'm I'm really a casual fan when it comes to folks like I just yeah. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure there are a bunch of people that I'm just not thinking of. Yeah, but. sure. Well, I kind of put you on the spot. So yeah, well, show Baraka, man. We we talked about maybe one eighth of the things I wanted to talk about, but there just wasn't enough, enough time in the day. So thank you so much for for thank making, you for reading the book. And uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've done a lot of interviews where you know many people have read the book, and there's some who haven't. And I just appreciate you asking <laughs> really, really poignant questions about the book. It was good. Well, I hope a lot of people read it. It's 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 it did me a lot of good. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it.
This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.